to another episode of the Bloodsucking Geeks podcast. I'm Chris, one of your hosts of the Bloodsucking Geeks. Uh, this is episode five of the Bloodsucking Geeks part two. Uh, last week we aired part one of this episode, which focused on The Exorcist. And we had a very special guest, uh, Mr. Rob Kruger, who was our former elementary and middle school teacher. He was a super, super awesome person. And he was our very first guest ever on our podcast, so that was really cool stuff to for us to have him on. He joins us again in part two, where we really dive deep into the actual Exorcist movie. Um, we have a lot of fun with this, so we hope you enjoy. All right, without further ado, here we go. All right, so uh, this movie, The Exorcist, that we're covering today, um, it's, for me, it's always been... Uh, a special movie it's the one movie that my mom said i could not see until i was 13 like anything else was fair game that one i was like my god so i eventually wait, wait i want to hear what robert's mom said about this movie <laughs> i wasn't allowed to watch it either and you really you know, i saw everything because it scared the shit out of her so she didn't want me to see it yeah so i i didn't end up seeing it until i was 17 and i was like fuck this and it was like <laughs> I, I think I had actually uh, stayed home sick from school, and uh, and I I can't remember if I saw it on cable or if I ended up just like walking down to McLeod's and renting it or something. <laughs> but wow. yeah, I, I ended up watching it. I ended up watching it by myself for the first time, oh, like just in the living room. <laughs> yeah, in the in the living room, laying on the couch, sick, you know, from school. And, and yeah, it was it was all I dreamed of. I guess. I mean. <laughs> It was definitely it was definitely caught me off guard a little. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like at that time, I was being raised Catholic, so all yeah. that shit to me was one hundred percent like, holy fuck, this is real shit. Uh, yeah. So, and I think like when I was watching it uh, a couple of days ago, my wife was walking through and she was giggling at a few of the parts and whatnot, and I can totally see someone that was never exposed to the Catholic faith or anything like that. Uh, and just looking at it from in, you know, 2020 for someone that's never seen it, it can be kind of hokey, but uh, we'll get into all that. But uh, let's start off with William Peter Blatty, the guy that uh, wrote the novel it was based on uh, in 1971. He uh, actually won an Academy Award for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, as I mentioned before, he uh, attended Georgetown University where he got his uh, bachelor's degree in English. Um, one interesting thing, he was actually a contestant on the Groucho Marx quiz show. You bet your life in 1961 and won $10,000. Uh, when he was asked what he was going to do with that, he said he was going to quit his job and write a novel. And after that, he never had a regular job for the rest of his life. Wow. So oh, interesting. Um, his first novel he published in 1959 
He also wrote um, a couple of other books that were adapted into movies, uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane in 66 that he rewrote in 78 as uh, the configuration that they that he made the movie uh, himself directed it and starring Jason Miller, the guy that plays Father Karras in 1980. And he also wrote the sequel to Exorcist Legion in 83, which he also directed in 1990. Um, Wasn't he primarily a comedic writer up to yeah. that point, though? He, he, he had never done horror or anything, right? No, he actually got uh, his start writing scripts for Blake Edwards, the guy that did Breakfast at Tiffany's and the Pink Panther series. Um so he was doing a, a bunch of comedy and he said that basically that line of work just dried up for him. And he had remembered the story he heard about when he was in college. So he started calling around doing some research and was able to, you know, get the material And the entire time he was thinking of it as a movie. So, um, he was in his mind kind of framing things the way he would like to have shot. And he was actually, um, he's the one that reached out to William Friedkin to direct it. So a little bit more than just selling his novel to the studio and then being in the background, he seemed to really have a hands-on role. He uh, even has a cameo in the movie uh, at the very beginning when they're filming the scene with Ellen Burstyn doing her uh, acting bit. Uh, the guy next to the director of the movie is William Friedkin. He's got a cheesy mustache like some other people I won't mention, Chris. Robert. And, uh, yeah, so, <laughs> but yeah, he uh, was he was the producer on this movie. He went on to write and produce and direct the Ninth Configuration, which uh, we'll get into a little bit later on. But it's technically a sequel because the main character in that is the astronaut from the party scene in The Exorcist when Reagan comes down the stairs and tells the guy, "You're gonna die up there." The yeah. Ninth Configuration is his story after he comes back from space. What? So I, I've never wild. seen it. I've heard good things, so I want to check it out. Um, yeah, so and also, obviously, he went on to um, write and direct uh, The Exorcist 3, which I think is a fucking great movie. has probably one of the most famous jump scare scenes in history. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit later on as well. But uh, the guy that made the movie, uh, William Friedkin, uh, he had just won an Academy Award for uh, The French Connection in 1971. Uh, the one with uh, Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, uh, actually won for Best Picture and Best Director as well. So um, I think a lot of people have seen it. He guys start making documentaries. Uh, he made one called The People vs. Paul Crump in 1962. They actually ended up getting a guy off death row. Uh, so he was doing stuff like that. He directed one of the last episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And uh, Hitchcock even talked shit to him about not wearing a tie while he was directing. So, I mean, kind of that merged from old school to new school. Uh, his first feature film was in 1965 called Good Times, uh, starring Sonny and Cher. Uh, he refers to that film as unwatchable. So <laughs> I'm going to take his advice. Has anyone I seen that? I've never heard of it. Didn't, didn't know it. I think yeah. I, I think I remember my mom talking about it. She was huge Sonny and Cher fan, so I'm I sure. only know the Robert Pattinson good time. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a fucking trip, by the way. Sorry about dropping these F bombs, but I'm telling you that movie, woo. <laughs> Robert Pattinson broke down. He's a good actor. He's a great actor. Uh, I'm not gonna get into that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like I said, uh 
uh, Blatty really liked the French Connection, how gritty it was, and how it was filmed almost as a documentary style. And that's the way he wanted The Exorcist to be filmed because, you know, lots of it can be taken in the hands of anyone else. You can make this a total exploitation film, real cheesy, drive-in type stuff. It does have some of those elements, but it's also just a really fucking good movie, which I mean, yeah. it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, so that's why I got him, and that's what freaking did. He tried to shoot it as like straightforward, uh, objectively as possible. Um, his next movie after this was a movie called uh, Sorcerer that came out the week after Star Wars. So it was lost to time because good luck competing mm. against Star Wars. Uh, in 1980, he did Cruising, which are uh, which uh, actually is based on one of the characters in The Exorcist, one of the actors, um, during the medical scenes where they're trying to see what's wrong with Reagan. The guy that plays the x-ray technician, uh, Paul Bateman, he actually went on in uh, later years to get convicted of murdering a uh, theater or a film reviewer for uh, Variety. And during his time in prison, he uh, supposedly confessed to William Freakin for this other series of murders where people were finding uh, trash bags of dismembered body parts Jeez. around New York. And um, so based and Freakin said that Paul Bateman had confessed to him that he was the one responsible for it. There was a novel that had been written in 1970 kind of along the same themes and uh all of that came together for him to make the movie Cruising, which uh, was very controversial at the time and uh, was protested heavily. Uh, after that, he really, I think he kind of hit it big in the 70s and he kept working. He did episode Tales from the Crypt. He directed Blue Chips with Shaquille O'Neal. That was Penny a great movie. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, he did Jade, the uh, erotic thriller with Linda Fiorentino where uh, oh. David Caruso tried to make the jump from NYPD blue to uh, movies. <laughs> like a failed. sex god? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, after Basic Instinct, every other movie was the erotic thriller that just... Yeah, has he has a pretty great moment. There's a pretty great erotic moment in Killer Joe with a with a, uh, with a chicken wing, which yeah, he sure, also yeah. directed. Yep. Shannon Tweet yep. made her money doing those movies. God maybe, bless maybe a year. Yes. Help make me a man. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those are the guys that made the movie. Uh, the actors, uh, this actually was kind of a ordeal for everyone because the studio wanted to put in big name actors. They wanted like Marlon Brando to play uh, Father uh, Marin. And, you know, freaking was like, hell no, it'll just be a Brando film and uh, all that Um so basically, they always wanted big people. They wanted uh, Catherine Hep Hepburn to play Chris McNeil, the mother. But she said she would only do it if they filmed in Rome because that's where she was living. And everyone's like, fuck that. Then um, Anne Bancroft uh, was up for the role, but she was a one month pregnant. And he didn't want to mess with waiting nine months and her being available or not available. And it's a very emotional movie as far as just children. Anyways, they didn't want to bring in anything extra. And then if you look online, like babies. yeah, <laughs> but if you look online for like Chris, for almost all these characters, anyone you can think of, there's something on the internet that says they were up for the role at one point or another. But, um, basically, uh, let's start with, uh, Max von Sydow, the guy that plays, uh, 
Father Marin, the the exorcist. Uh, he's a Swedish guy. Um, the first movie I ever saw him in was uh, The Seventh Seal in 1957, an Ingmar Bergman movie, which is fucking awesome if you haven't seen it. Uh, he actually did 13 movies with Ingmar Bergman between that and uh, 1971. Then he uh, made his first, like, outside of uh, Sweden movie, The Greatest Story Ever Told, where he played Jesus. Uh, and then 73, he got the part of Father uh, Lancaster Marin. Uh, William Pierre Blatty based that character on a real person, Gerald Lancaster Harding, a British archaeologist who was the director of antiquities in Jordan uh, and actually is the one that excavated the cave where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So he was this big archaeologist guy. If you look at them, they look really fucking similar. Um, and actually he, he looks similar to that archaeologist dude, as well as the main priest who actually did the real exorcism, uh, uh, father Halloran, I believe it was. So, um, he was only 44 years old when they made this movie. And I think that was really one of the first times I ever saw him. And, I always thought of him as being old and seeing him in like a movie from the nineties or two thousand. It's like, Holy shit, that old dude's still alive. <laughs> but watching some of the behind the scenes, uh, documentaries I did for this, you see him in the makeup chair and everything. And he's young as shit. I mean, he's, they were talking about how on the set you would see this old guy, but then he's up just walking all spryly around because you know, he's 44 and he's a big dudes like six, five. So, he definitely uh, looked way older than 44 in this film. Like, oh I, yeah, I yeah. thought he was way too old to be out there in Iraq or wherever he was to be. Yeah, like, you, around well, he's supposed like, to be 74. Yeah, is, and at times, like during the exorcism scenes, he's wearing more makeup than Linda Blair is, <laughs> just because getting him to look that way. But uh, I thought it was really well done because I, until you know, I knew who. Uh, Max von Sydow was, I was like, this is just some old dude that's really lived forever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, after this, he definitely kept going and had a pretty awesome career. He was in the sequel, which sucked. Um, Flash Gordon, Ming the Merciless. This is Max von Sydow. Um, I did not know this. He played the voice of Vigo in Ghostbusters 2. So, uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. I'm honestly, I don't. Are you guys familiar with any of his work outside of this movie? The Scourge of Carpathia. Yeah. Needful Things. He played the devil in that. So he's played Jesus and the devil. Uh, he was in Judge Dredd. people have Dredd. done that. I have. Yeah. <laughs> he's also in uh, the original Judge Dredd, Minority Report, Shutter oh, Island. He's he was the Three Eyed Raven in Game of Thrones. Uh, yep. So, uh, yeah. He did a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, basically, he, he was pretty easy to cast. They just sent him the script, and the, everyone was kosher with that, which is like the only instance of everyone being on the same page as far as the casting goes with this. Um, the other priest in the movie, Father Damien Karras, is played by Jason Miller, who you might not know, but is the father of Jason Patrick. Uh, he actually, this is his first time acting on film he uh basically the way they found him is william friedkin went to go see his play because he was a playwright and he had um a play out called the Ch that championship season which actually won the pulitzer prize for uh 
Drama and a Tony Award for Best Play that same year. So while he was filming The Exorcist, he got news that he had won the fucking Pulitzer. <laughs> so, um, but in that play, there's lots of stuff about, uh, you know, faith as far as it goes with Catholics and stuff like that. And freaking just wanted to go talk to him. And uh, they started talking about it. And he's like, this guy actually could be Karis. And um, so he left him the novel to read. And by the time he called, it was interested in the part. They had already cast uh, Stacy Keach in it. And um, so there's like, ah, we already got this guy, but he pretty much demanded to come out to L.A. And he took a train because he doesn't fly and did a screen test. And at that point, they were just like, holy shit, this guy is Karis. And they convinced the studio to, you know, buy out the contract of Stacy Keach and hire Jason Miller. Um he was nominated for a uh, best supporting actor uh, in his first film role ever. So I thought that was pretty neat. He reprised this role in uh, Exorcist three as patient X, which uh, I, Chris, I know you probably saw that with Joe Bob here not too long ago. Uh, but yeah, that's a cool movie. Um, he was a really bad alcoholic uh, that there's lots of stories about his involvement in Exorcist three, just because of, Brad Dourif kind of split the role with him, uh, famous for, you know, the voice of Chucky and one flew over the cuckoo's nest, lots of shit, Brad Dourif's in, but, um, there's stories that he wasn't available, his schedule, and that's why they had to split the role. But, uh, Brad Dourif actually says that at that point, his alcoholism was so advanced. He had what they call wet brain where he just couldn't remember his line. So they could only get so much out of him. And like the long monologues that are part of that uh, role, uh, Brad Dourif had to do. But, you know, conflicting stories. He was also the head coach in Rudy. I did not know that. Really? I, I don't remember yeah. that. Me either. But I haven't oh, seen like, that movie. I, I was going to say. <laughs> I don't oh, know if man. I've ever rewatched that movie again after the first time. Why would you? Yeah. Why would you? <laughs> Little Samwise yeah, Gamgee but... playing football. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> Ellen Burstyn, <laughs> she plays the mother, Chris McNeil, the, uh, actress whose daughter, uh, learns about the facts of life from a demon, I guess. Uh, she began her career as a dancing girl on the Jackie Gleason show in 1955. Uh, she's a pretty serious actor now. Uh, I mean, she's been nominated for six Academy Awards. She's won an Oscar for uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, a Scorsese film, an Emmy for an episode of Law and Order SVU, and a Tony for a play called Same Times Next Year. Uh, so the winner of the Triple Crown of Acting, not many people have done that, but Oscar, yeah, Emmy, and all Tony. She, all she needs to do is do a Grammy, and she's got that EGOT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's get her uh, breakout on role. Some fire mixtape. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Her breakout role was uh, Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show in 1971. Uh, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in that. Um, they brought in a whole bunch of people trying to get uh, the right person for this character. I talked about um, Catherine Hepburn uh, and Bancroft. The character that uh, freak, it was Freaking or Blatty actually had in mind was Shirley MacLaine. Because at the time she was a single mother who was an actress raising her daughter and they were friends with her. 
So that just that kind of dynamic they have in the movie between Chris and Reagan, they mirrored it off what uh, Shirley MacLaine and her daughter had. Um, but Shirley MacLaine had been in a similar exorcism movie a couple of years before, so they didn't want her. But uh, Ellen Burson called William Friedkin basically saying, I'm destined to play this role. Give me the role. And just, uh, you know, being forceful and assertive got her way into the role. Um, studio was really, really against this. I read a story about how one of the bosses for the studios basically said, like, you'll do this over my dead body. And actually laid down on the floor in his office and made freaking walk over him to the door. <laughs> and she's like pulling at his leg. But uh, obviously he acquiesced. Uh, like I said, she won an Oscar in 74 for uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She was the old lady in Requiem for a Dream that gets uh, hooked on pills and whatnot. That was the, uh, I couldn't come up with the name of the film. Yeah. She was fucking mind-blowing in that. They're an old fob. They were, they yeah, all were. That, that's, that's a hard movie, man. That's a, that's oh, a man. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she was I still don't, I don't mess with needles because uh, that actress. movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was in the fantastic uh, Wicker Man remake with Nicolas Cage. Not the bees. Yep, there you go. She played Barbara Bush in W, and she played the uh, little girl as an old lady in Interstellar. But she runs like a bunch of theater companies uh, and acting camps and stuff like that. So real like serious lady as far as the acting goes. Uh, before we get to, you know, the star of the movie, I think Linda Blair, uh, Lee J. Cobb, who plays the cop, uh, Kinderman, he was a famous old actor. He was uh, actually the guy that originated the role of Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman on Broadway back in uh, 49. I didn't know this, but in 51, he was accused of being a communist by the House uh, Un-American Activities Committee and was actually one of the people that named names. Uh, so he was worried about getting blacklisted and being able to provide for his family. Uh, after that, he made on the waterfront with Ilya Kazan in 1954. And that's kind of seen by lots of people because Kazan had also named names as being there, like an allegory for their situation and everything going on in the country at that time. And kind of an apology for doing what they did. Uh, he was also in 12 angry man men as the, uh, grumpy juror number three. He was in the Exodus. And then, uh, here he is in the exorcist, which, uh, in the exorcist three made in 1990, George C. Scott played it because, uh, Lee J. Cobb had died by that time. And then finally on to Linda Blair. So before I get in, what do y'all think about Linda Blair in this? Cause I mean, pretty powerful <laughs> performance from a 12 year old. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it's the shit they put her through and the shit she had to do is brutal. And for a 12 year old to do, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. You, you, I, I wonder, uh, the prude in me comes out and I'm like, what parent would let their child do something, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I don't know. She was, she was brilliant. I mean, I can't see anybody else doing it and you can't, you know, like is, is often the case you'd have to be really careful about casting someone that's 16 because 16, 17, you're not going to have that same childlike look necessarily that yeah. she had, you know, the which innocence. Is, yeah, exactly. These things they'll have on set, they'll have like a, they'll have psychologists, we'll have intimacy coaches. We'll have these different people who are assigned to kind of make sure that it keeps uh, even keel. But I 
highly doubt they had anything that like that back then. And I think that's one of the marvels of this movie is how she made it through like basically, un, you know, basically uninjured. And you see all the different stunts and different physical gags she does. I guess uh, Billy Freakin um, made the like ensured the set was like super serious, um, especially when she was doing you know certain scenes where she was like cussing and saying certain things because they didn't want her to feel uncomfortable. I mean, because she's already in, uh, I would imagine being incredibly uncomfortable saying these really bad things in front of a room of adults and stuff. So they were just trying to keep her as comfortable as possible during a lot of those scenes. Um, and so like you know Billy freaking. If you watch any sort of the documentaries, you know that he's a very uh, strange person and had some um, unorthodox means. Whereas, like, um, I don't want to spoil, you know, Corey's, uh, you know, stuff because I know he's one to talk about later. But, yeah, anyway, I, I, you know, as crazy as Billy Freakin was, and he certainly was crazy, I do respect, you know, some of the stuff that he did, especially with, like, Linda Blair, because, you know, you guys are right, you know, you you're making what could be the, the craziest, you know, demonic movie made ever up to that point. You have this young actress who's pretty inexperienced, like as a director, how do you kind of take her and help her along, you know, throughout the filming of this movie and to make her ultimately this like incredibly scary, demonic um, and possessed uh, little girl. So, so yeah, I mean, Linda Blair, to me, she's kind of an icon because of this movie and also she's done some really awesome exploitation films since then. Um, she basically got started as a child model and commercials and magazines. She had like 75 appearances by the time she was 12. Uh, this role was the hardest of all to cast because you know, the material, uh, the girl who played, um, Violet Beauregard, Denise Nickerson played Violet Beauregard, the, uh, girl that eats chew scum blows up like a blueberry and, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, she was up for the role, but her parents nixed that because of the material. They didn't want her doing it. Um, and that's the thing, just having a 12-year-old basically carry this movie, the studio was nervous about it. They were auditioning people up to 16 years old. Uh, I read something at one point, they're even considering adult dwarves to be in it, which I would love to see that movie. <laughs> the Exorcist with dwarves. Uh, it'd be something. Um, one of the stories, so she's part of a cat, she had a casting agency and, uh, they didn't give her this role, but her mother brought her in to the audition. And, uh, the story I read was, uh, freaking asked her, uh, you know, what's this movie about? Have you read the book? And she says about a girl who gets possessed by the devil and does a bunch of bad things. She pushes a man out of her bedroom window and she hits her mother across the face, masturbates with her crucifix. You know, you have a 12-year-old girl telling you this. He's like, do you know what that is? She said, it's like jerking off, isn't it? And he was like, have you ever done that? Sure, haven't you? So for a 12-year-old, she's pretty hardcore sounding. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the conversation you necessarily want to be having with a 12-year-old, but uh, the 70s. Uh, So, yeah, uh, she did get injured while making this movie, though, Uh, in one of the many scenes where she's, you know, flopping around on the bed, the rig that was holding her broke and she uh, injured her back pretty badly. Uh, so that was one of the things. And also just in her bedroom during the scenes of the exorcism, when you see their breath, they actually had that set, you know, like I think I saw it say 20 below zero because 
they had to get that cold because the air conditioners they had would take out all the, it was basically a dehumidifier. So when you breathe, there wasn't anything to turn into that mist. So they had to get so super fucking cold and, uh, you know, all the directors and everyone's going around with these big parkas on and whatnot. And she's there with long johns and a little nightgown. So she still can't handle being cold to this day. And they can only shoot for so long because once they got it to that temperature and then turned on all the lights, and everyone started acting, the room would warm up and they couldn't get the breath effect that they wanted. So, uh, she definitely had to suffer through that. Um, all the hours in the makeup chair, because, you know, that's her under all that. That's not her voice. We'll get to that. But, uh, and for all this, she was, you know, nominated for an Academy award. One of several people in this movie, uh, that got nominated, uh, after this, she went on to make a, uh, a string of made-for-TV movies, including Born Innocent in 74, which was the highest-rated movie in 1974. And you just don't see this anymore. Network TV, there's a scene where her character is gang-raped in a shower by a group of girls using a toilet plunger. Whoa! Network TV. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> Rob Finn- or is TV like this back in the seventies? I'd completely forgotten about that. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, for sure. I wanted to see again what the deal was. It was much more insinuated than anything else. You know, there really wasn't anything hardcore to it. But then too, the, the first thing that comes to mind is when Jan Brady, Eve Plum did the thing about a runaway portrait of a teenage runaway. Was it? Um, which introduced you, us all to a um a group or the runaway alcoholic. Yeah, there's that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was her next one. Uh Sarah T Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic. Another made for TV movie. I mean, the networks, I don't know what they're doing right now with all this reality TV. Uh in this one she plays a teenage alcoholic. She drinks at school, gets the housekeeper fired for watering down the scotch, passes out while babysitting. <laughs> My favorite part, she gets her horse injured in a car accident, and the horse <laughs> has to be put out of its misery by the cops. But, of course, at the end, she admits she has a problem at is an alcoholic at AA meeting, so it all turns out well. Bless and then uh, she Not made the sequel to The Exorcist, The Heretic, in 1977. And I just want to read a few uh, quotes about this movie instead of going into any detail, because I think this will uh, sum it up better than I could. Uh, William Friedkin said, the worst piece of crap I've ever seen. The BBC called it uh, Exorcist 2 is demonstrably the worst film ever made. Oh. <laughs> uh, one reviewer said, there's a very strong possibility that Exorcist 2 is the stupidest major movie ever made. <laughs> the stupid. And Linda Blair said, one of the biggest disappointments of my career. So, uh, I don't know, maybe we're going to have to tackle that one. One, one of these days on the podcast uh, that seems to fit with our uh, little streak we had going of really terrible movies. <laughs> uh, so after that, she did uh, a Wes Craven made for TV movie that aired on Halloween 78 stranger in the house. Uh, he made that after last house on the left and Hills have eyes. And then she really started what um, I would call her exploitation career because um She's a wild child. Uh, she was dating Rick Springfield when she was 15. She dated the bassist for Deep Purple, one of the guitar players from Styx. 
She even dated Rick James for two years in the early 80s, and the song Cold Blooded is about Linda Blair. Just to say. No way. Because you don't bring home to mother. Yeah. <laughs> Reagan. Uh, in 1977, she was charged with conspiracy to buy cocaine. Uh, this all arose because, um, of course, she's friends with Leonard Skinnerd. So in 77, she flew to Florida to go to their funeral when the plane crashed and several of them died. And while there, uh, some of her friends were buying some coke and the dealer was selling puppies as well. Because, you know, it's kind of a, <laughs> it's a two for one day. The Taco Bell and Pizza Hut cocaine and puppies and a chihuahua uh but she was like okay but she stayed in touch with this dealer and was you know like calling him on the phone and everything and eventually was like okay i'm gonna come back to florida to get these puppies unfortunately the dea had tapped that guy's phone she went there to get the puppies peer pressure being the bitch it is forced her to buy some cocaine as well cops <laughs> raided the place i don't see why this is in a movie so she's Puppy in one hand, coke in the other. And uh, basically, uh, she got in trouble for that and uh, had then to she do some. The cocaine up the dog's ass, right? <laughs> ah, that's the last thing we need. <laughs> so at that point, you know, that cocaine bust really hurt her career because, you know, typical child star and whatnot. Um, she made a movie, and we talked about this a little bit before, uh, called Roller Boogie which has a current rating of 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the plot is two youngsters fall in love while boogie skating to disco music. Along the way, they <laughs> thwart a powerful mobster who wants the land their favorite roller rink sits on and compete in the boogie contest. Roller boogie. Have, have you seen that, Rob? I've not. <laughs> that one's oh. out of my league, man. <laughs> no, Robert so, uh, read it out of McLeod's once, though. Yeah. Twice. So she made this when she was 20, and this is what launched her into being a uh, sex symbol in the 80s. Uh, she made a horror movie, Hell Night, in 81. Then the classic women in prison exploitation film, Chained Heat. Which, you know what? Uh, she cursed her career talking shit on Exorcist 2. That's the mistake she made. It is pretty fucking bad, though, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen it? Yeah, but you know what though? Like it's I get that, but then when you go on and have a career, you know, like where you just maybe do a bunch of schlocky stuff. How I dare you? I don't know. Uh yeah, so Chained Heat, the guy that plays Dean Wormer from Ammo House is the warden, and this is the type of movie where um, you know, women in prison and the warden has a hot tub in his office. So <laughs> classic, classic Chained Classic Heat, movie. not to be confused with Caged Heat, which is a way better uh, female prison, like, lesbianic uh, experience movie. How dare you? You just, very, uh, that was a good visual, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, this is a non-visual media. Um, next, in 1984, she did Savage Streets, which I watched just a few weeks ago, co-starring uh, another exploitation great, Linnea Quigley. Uh, Linda Blair won a Razzie award for this one. Uh, basically she's this tough leader of a street gang of all girls and her little sister who's deaf gets raped and beaten by uh, all male street gang. So she takes revenge and uses a crossbow for a good chunk of this revenge is fucking awesome. Definitely would awesome. recommend checking it out. <coughs> Wait. Okay. So first of all, where's the remake with, you know, it, but oh, what, it's what is coming. Savage streets, Savage streets. 
It's like a Bronson film. <laughs> and then uh 1990s she did a parody of the exorcist with leslie nielsen called repossessed but um i remember yeah. seeing the the vhs yeah uh, oh, it's, it's a at, great at, movie at like uh what was it um i remember I like videos. videos videos is where i saw it from yeah yeah, it was yeah. Videos, so never watched it though yeah uh Exorcist 3 actually came out a month before that was released. So Linda Blair said that that one ate up all the publicity for it. And that's why Repossessed was not the hit it was destined to be. And then uh, really, (laughs) she still does. She does a bunch of TV now. And um, she I didn't know this, but she has an uncredited cameo in Scream as a reporter. News reporter. Yeah. 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 did not notice that. That's interesting. And then she played a uh, cop in an episode of Supernatural that dealt with uh, some possession-like circumstances. So, yeah, that's Linda Blair. She's awesome. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> Have you met her? Fuck you. <laughs> met no, I'm, I'm, no. No, I'm saying she's... <laughs> okay, never mind then. If you like no, her, I'm not going to no. tell you about her. No, you... Uh-oh, all right. No, let's hear, let's hear it. Please, let's hear it. don't make us beg you. <laughs> no, I just, she was, she was very off-putting and very bitchy to a lot of people, like, the day that I met her. Like, really? she, like, refused to take pictures with, with, like, full families if they didn't pay more. And, like, shit like that. You gotta just make like, that money, man. And just, like, Being telling people where to... Discounts for little kids. <laughs> Right, but like she was telling people where to stand in their own pictures and shit <laughs> like that. Well, can't necessarily she wouldn't like this isn't a big. She's won a Razzie, Robert. She the acting's yeah. not, not bringing in the money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The she's, the, and she's the tiniest person I have for her. <laughs> the last credit I have for her is an uncredited cameo. Tells you what her career is doing right now. No, no, she I doesn't have a career. Awesome. I'm not saying circuit. that. Yeah, I'm not saying that she's a good person or anything, but her acting career is fucking awesome. Oh, okay, yeah. Just don't try yeah. to get your kids in with a photo with her, Corey. Yeah, no, my kids are. That's gonna cost you extra. Not going near that bit. Uh-uh, she's too spooky in me still. Yeah. Um, so. Linda Blair was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for this, but there was some controversy because originally they tried to play it that, you know, she was the only person doing that character. It was her voice, manipulator, or whatever, and uh, so on and so forth. But actually, there were two, two other people. Um, Mercedes McCambridge uh, provided the voice. Uh, she was an old radio actress that Orson Welles actually once said called the world's greatest living radio actress. She had already won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in All the King's Men in 1949. She was in uh, the cult classic Johnny Guitar. She's in Giant. Uh, and then for The Exorcist, they brought her in. She was 57 years old at the time. And she had been a really bad alcoholic, but had you know gotten sober a few years before. But for this role, she actually started drinking again to get her voice all rough. So before she did everything, she would drink raw eggs, chain smoke and chug whiskey to get her voice that, you know, abrasive and everything. And also just as she got drunk, she got more, you know, aggressive as a person. And additionally to that, Friedkin also would tie her to a chair, arms, legs, neck, 
And so while she's doing these lines, she's actually straining against restraints uh, while also doing all that stuff to her throat. So that's how she got that kind of performance. Um, Originally, and this went into like lawsuits and stuff, she didn't receive any credit in the movie because Freakin said that she didn't want the credit, that she wanted nothing to take away from Linda Blair and her performance and that she was fine without it. But then the movie comes out and she sees all the publicity and how huge this movie is because originally it was only released in like 24 theaters in the Northeast. And, um, people were standing in lines because it came out on December 26, 1973. And people were standing in lines around the block to see this movie like multiple times. So after that, they, you know, released it nationwide, a lot wider release. And after that, um, Either way, whatever the case was, eventually she got credit for the voice because, uh, you know, she had done such a great job. I think just never seeing the person, but that voice is something that for me personally, uh, I always connect with this movie. And anytime I see the movie, the first time I hear it, it gives me the creeps. I mean, do y'all have any kind of like instant reaction to seeing this movie again? You know, it's like you say, the, the, the voice itself and, you know, the, 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 the trick that you filmmakers, Cody, sound guys, you know, anybody, the little tricks that you come up, they come up with, like to tie her so she's fighting against those restraints. You know, never would have guessed that, but I think about it, it's like, okay, I can totally hear that, you know, in her voice and all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she, you know. I mean, um, I. Go ahead. I was just saying, especially just being a voice actor, there's, I would guess so much more that goes into that than just seeing a microphone talking because you're still acting. So I guess you're still using your entire body, even though it's not necessarily being appreciated that way. Right. For real. Yeah. All those voice actors are always like physically performing uh, so much, man. I mean, between the score, which gives me like major, like uh, heartburn for some reason, just like immediate, <laughs> immediate acid reflux. And uh, but man, like the sound design of this film is just so wild. Like everything you hear from other rooms as they're going into the room and you're seeing the next reveal, the next situation, it's it's just like these brilliant pieces. And they didn't have all this digital ass like noise reduction and the stuff that we use these days to make stuff sound really clean. You know, they're using relying on like old analog equipment, like and and just like their performances to really sell it, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, A, it's 1973, so lots of the stuff in some of the documentaries, the, like the cinematographer is just like, yeah, we would have, like, refrigerating the set wouldn't have been necessary. We would just add it in with computers afterwards. But all yeah. that stuff, they showed some really cool behind-the-scenes stuff of the rigs they came up with to get some of the camera angles and whatnot. Like, um, when they had a scene with the psychiatrist at right after she does all the tests and she uh, basically grabs him by the balls and he falls backwards. That's a whole rig they built up with the camera, like right from his face. So many feet uh, freaking said the grips are the ones that he just told him what the problem was. And they built this entire contraption where he's basically just sitting there in front of the camera. They tilt the entire thing back to, to the floor. And just stuff like that is really interesting how they just the practical effects. And like, Rob, you were talking about the bed shaking and it pans behind the wall. And there's like three or four guys just rub, bumping these sticks and turning cranks and stuff. And uh, 
just really cool how they did all that stuff without I mean the CGI stuff that's definitely a talent and a skill and people can do amazing things with it but I still think it's just fascinating how old school people did without that not saying it's necessarily always used as a crutch but it definitely can be when people could do something way more effective with some, just some creativity. I mean, what were your experiences with that, Cody? Oh man, a practical effect is always better than the uh, than the, the CG stuff. And this this film just kept amazing me because okay, I never saw it as a kid. Like it just looked too fucking scary. It sounded too scary. Uh, my my wife tells me that her mother in law saw it in in real time in the theater. And when uh, when she stands up and says "fuck me" to the uh, to the to the family, she just got up and ran out of the theater because she was brought up Catholic and it just like devastated her. And man, like the uh, like just to see all these practical applications of how like they're doing this shit, you know, without without CG, I'm just like that's that's applaudable, especially in this day and age. You know, like I love a good camera trick, but you know, you'll see like things in Lovecraft Country is heavily CG and practical too at the same time. So like the combination is like just really evolved so much. And yeah, I think that a lot of possession movies and demonic situations in movies have borrowed from the exorcist and used those kind of tricks. Cause you see like, uh, I guess there's a movie like it follows like that first person perspective, you know, like that sort of situation was born from shots like that that falling down where she grabbed him by the cock. I mean, that was a really interesting like uh, move too for the demon, you know, like, I mean, it's kind of, kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, just lots of really cool stuff. And like the uh, rig they built for the vomit scene, apparently, you know, they had it all hidden underneath the makeup, but once it was in their mouth, they couldn't shut their mouth. And, uh, the reaction Jason Miller has when the vomit hits him in the face is genuine because it was supposed to him in the chest. So he uh, actually was not, he wasn't prepared for the puke to him right in the face. And uh, he was apparently pretty pissed off about that. But I mean, along with that, and then, you know, Linda Blair getting <laughs> hurt uh, on the bed when the rig broke with that. And then uh, when her mother comes in and she's doing the famous, uh, masturbating with the crucifix scene which is a whole other thing getting a 12 year old to do that holy shit um and then slaps her and she goes flying when uh ellen burston landed on the ground her cry out her like reaction was genuine because she had told the told freaking don't let the stunt people you know pulling pull me back too hard but he was like okay and told them to do as hard as they could and she landed right on her tailbone and that reaction was her genuine reaction. She actually had a legit back injury the rest of her life because of that. Well, you, so, you get those, you get those real reactions when you're using these practical effects. I know that is fucked up. And some of the shit that happened to Linda Blair, is fucked up from the injuries. But when you do these practical effects right there, you get a better real human reaction. Oh, yeah. when, all right. Look at that. Look at that purple dot over there. And that's going to be, you know, shit coming at you. It's going to be a fucking dragon or whatever. Like, you know, it's just, Oh, we, we are the real thing. people on a, on a fall or push stunt. We always tell them on three and we always push them or, or pull them on one. Like no matter <laughs> what, like, that's the only way. Cause then they're, they're running into it and Oh man, I can't even, don't even get me started on fighting, like fight anticipation. 
Like, if you watch it, like, not so much nowadays, but, like, in earlier action films, like, they're, like, leaning into it, and they're, like, it's so funny because the guys are making punch sounds with their hands when they're punching, and you have to fix that. Like, it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's that's why I love the story out of Alien that that nobody but uh, who was it John Hurt knew what was going to happen in that no. <laughs> You know they 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 knew something was up but they had no idea. So like you say that real reaction is just it's amazing. Yeah, and like freaking did this shit throughout the movie. At one point he uh, fired off a starter pistol right behind Jason Miller to get a startled reaction from him and. Uh, at the very end, after Karis falls down the stairs and the priest comes down to give him his last rites, and he's all crying and everything, they had tried that scene a couple of times and he couldn't get right, so freaking brought him over. It's like, do you trust me? And the guy said yes, and he just smacked him right across the face and said, film. And that's yeah. like the genuine reaction he got. His, his hand his, trembling wasn't him acting. He was actually just like this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, you, I'm sure you've run some directors like that, Cody, but that just seems like way more of an old school method of just yeah. actually putting your you know talent through the ringer to get that kind of performance instead of just telling them what you want and relying on them to organically generate it. Yeah, it's interesting that that I mean, you know, the 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 positive aspects of a movie that wins so many awards goes through so many protocol lists you know, instances where you're like, oh, that's not safe. And that's not good for <laughs> anybody's, you know, well-being. Oh, that's been, so 1973. You know, <laughs> oh, I'm saying that next time on set. Because we've run into those situations where it's like kind of iffy. I have a hilarious story. This didn't, this wasn't on the thing I worked on, but I always hear this story as like uh, a, a cautionary tale about like, don't, you know, don't do stuff before you're not supposed to do stuff. Well, there's this film and like this woman is apparently glued to the floor and the director was really gung ho about gluing her to the floor. And he really actually glued her ass to the floor. And she's like prone or like, or like, uh, she's like bent over like on all fours and her knees and elbows are glued to the floor. And then like, all right, that's lunch. And everyone just goes and takes a 30 and the direct, they just leave <laughs> her just on set, just straight up glued to the ground. And I'm like, damn, Okay. <laughs> and I guess that that was like maybe a performance building situation, but I think you kind of have to prepare your actors for that, you know, like in some, some way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um, with all these effects, uh, obviously when her head turns 360, that's not her. They actually had a, uh, puppet, I guess is the best way to describe it. That, that did that. Um, what I found really interesting is the sound that was made. The sound guy had uh, this guy's leather wallet and twisted <laughs> it next to a microphone to get that sound of her neck twisting around. Nice. So, so I thought that was cool. Uh, I'm sure you use some tricks like that. And uh, yeah, just like I mentioned before, with all of these effects and everything. Um, oh, real quick. Uh, Mercedes McCambridge did the voice, uh, but there's another lady, Eileen Dietz who yeah. several times throughout the movie, they have a little, they're not subliminal because you clearly can see it, but it's Pazuzu's face, the demon and it's uh, you know, kind of white face with some black uh, highlights in it. Um, you see it several times throughout the movie. Uh, I always catch it an extra time. Anytime I watch the movie, yeah. but uh, she was also 
for a brief bit in the scene where she vomits because they were doing all the screen tests with her and just one of the bits that they had with her found its way into the movie. But she was the voice or the face of Pazuzu that you see throughout the movie, which uh, I thought was pretty cool. After that, she's done a little bit of stuff, nothing too big. Um, but yeah, Eileen Dietz is the one that did that. Uh, also, I mean, along with all the injuries that happened, the set burned down one time. Uh, just a little bit into filming. They had a two story set that just burnt to the ground. No one knew how it happened. They did investigation, couldn't find any arsonists, couldn't find any accident or anything like that. And this just goes along with this whole thing about this production being cursed. Uh, Shudder just did a series on cursed films. And one of the episodes was on the exorcist. And one of the documentaries I Ellen Burson said during production, like nine people died. And then other people were saying two people died. And then someone else was like, eh, I don't know if anyone died. But well, that's what I was going to say about the fire thing. Like I was watching the old E True Hollywood story and there was people saying like they heard nothing about a fire. Like there yeah. was they, they knew nothing about a fire that ever happened. So like it, there's there's so many sides and so many there's this you know tales about the exorcist yeah i mean lots of people say you know lots of this stuff might have been made up just to you know for publicity and and max von seidel had a good point this this movie was only supposed to take you know x amount of days to film but it because of everything that happened it went on for like 200 plus days yeah it was supposed to be like 85 days or something like that and then yeah yeah. just kept going yeah, it's just they uh, started filming in August of 72 and didn't finish until July of 73. So he's like, yeah, it's a year-long production. Of course people are going to fucking die. It doesn't mean, you know, if it's a two-week production and nine people die, okay. But a year-long yeah. production, <laughs> well, shit happens. Um, but yeah, talking about all the effects and everything, the thing, and we mentioned this before, that more so than anything that grossed people out was the uh, cerebral angioplasty that they did, where uh, they put the needle in her neck, and then what they're doing is they don't do it anymore, thank God, uh, but they had to drain some cerebral spinal fluid out of your brain, then inject this other solution in, so when they took the x-ray, the tissues would show up better. So what they do is when they put that first thing in and pull it out, and her blood's just shooting out in rhythm uh-huh. with her heart. That's really how they used to do it. And um, Friedkin had gone to a university hospital in 72, I think, and had seen this procedure done by the people that perform it in the movie. And he was so affected by it, he wanted to put that in the film. And it has become like one of the things that bother people the most. And also at the same time, it's like a historical artifact because they don't do that procedure anymore. And doctors have used it as a training video because it's done so accurately. And, you know, people are even people there. It's like, yes, this is a great movie, but that scene is just totally unnecessary. It bothers them so much, but I don't know. I've seen, I think Robert and I have seen some gory, gory stuff. So to me, just seeing the little blood shooting out didn't really bother me, but I can definitely see just, that's when it kind of takes you out of being in a movie. You just see a little girl having this surgical procedure done bleeding. And see, that's I'd forgotten about that bit, but that's exactly what it was for me. Mm. It was just so visceral because she's 
the way she's I don't want to say whining that that's not good enough, but she's whimpering, you know, and she's scared shitless and all this. And then they they got the like MRI type thing going on with all the noise, the bang, bang, bang. Uh, it would like, be terrifying for a 12-year-old. No, for real. It was for a grown man that would be terrifying, much less a 12-year-old girl. But see, that's what that's what I tell people. It's I just don't do needles like we were talking about. Me neither. Anytime, you know, Pulp Fiction, one of the greatest films ever made, the shooting up scene, forget it. I'm going to do the high <laughs> thing. Uh-uh, don't do the needles, man. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I worked at a horror film uh, in we had a scene where a girl is torturing a guy with acupuncture needles in his neck. Okay. So I was doing the sound design for this. Right. And and during filming, I mean, she had to sit on his, she had to straddle him for like three hours while we got all the angles and she, and we had this fake neck and she's actually sticking the real acupuncture needles in this fake neck that she, he can, that she can really stab. And uh, in post, they were like, we got to find a great sound. And so I got like the, uh, just above the neck of my guitar and that little, like when she rakes her fingers across it, because that's what she does. It's just like a nice little rake across it. It's, I mean, that kind of stuff just wiles me out. Like there's a scene in Saw 2, maybe, yeah. where the chick falls Two in the pit three. of needles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like every 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 possible like air uh, tight crevice creased, like crinkles up when that when I see that part of that film. Like, oof. And also in the boys, A Train. When he kills, he he ODs his girlfriend. Spoiler alert! And he does it. He's he's a he's a speedster, so he can go real fast. And he puts like thirty needles in her arm at once. And you're just like, what? That that <laughs> that just happened. It's supposed to be a superhero show. <laughs> so yeah, pretty hardcore stuff. And that brings us to uh, you know the release and everything in this movie because this is 1973, and you know if it came out now. I think if anything, the only reason it would get uh, our rating outside the language is just the topic and having a 12 year old say some of these things. But in general, it's kind of tamed by today's standards. I mean, when you have after 2000, all the torture porn and everything, this is, but um, when they submit it to the MPAA for uh, getting rated, the head of the company, the board, actually watched it himself before anyone else did. And the movie, you know, somehow, some way got through without any cuts, uh, and got the R rating instead of X rating that lots of people thought did should receive. And the, uh, I forget his name, but the guy who was in charge of the MPAAs just said, this film is so important and so well-made that it deserves to be seen. Mm. So he might've been saying, yeah, there probably is some stuff, but this is not just, you know, a typical exploitation movie, just trying to make money by gross out effects and shocking people. It's an important movie. And so, uh, and especially back then, like right now, I think lots of movies get released with a, like a not rated, like the circus of the dead. I would be willing to bet that's not rated. Um, just lots of movies is with the way streaming works. Now the X ratings, not that big of a deal, but back then, you know, movie movie theaters went show your film that therefore, you know, newspapers went review your film and it basically was just a death sentence. And it put you right up there with pornography that that's you're just not going to be successful. And so it was really important that this film got an R rating. But even despite that, there were places like Boston tried to just totally shut it down 
uh, and wouldn't even allow children to go see it, even if they were with an adult. And this happened all around the country that, uh, you know, communities were just like, I don't care. We're not showing this movie or we will show it, but children are not going to be allowed to see it because it was just that shocking. And I think, Rob, you might be able to talk about this a little bit more, just the culture in the country and how much this was compared to today. If that came out, it wouldn't have the same effect on people. But back then, like, was there anything even, you know, that you would compare it to? Yeah, existed before. Honestly, I can't. I mean, my memory, and I don't know that it's exactly correct, when it finally opened um, in Fort Worth, when it, it may have done Dallas first and then came over like happens sometimes, but when it finally opened at Fort Worth, it was at the, uh, God, the um, by Seminary South, you know, the um, <laughs> very rude way of saying it, the Third World Mall, or yeah. <laughs> yeah. we were calling it for a while. But back when their theater was, you know, still doing its thing, it was fairly new at that point. Um, I don't remember the lines. I don't remember the hype. At least the press wasn't picking up on it where I could see it. You know, I think, um, I don't know. It just Now that I think about it in that sense, it just seems like that was such a different time that because of social media and all that, we're all up in each other's shit all the time. And there's all this stuff out there. Back then, I felt like if you didn't like it, you didn't watch it. Yeah. Instead of complaining about it and going crazy and all this sort of stuff. Like when Last Temptation of Christ came out and people that hadn't even seen it were, you know, protesting and all this. And it's like, then don't watch it. Yeah. The TV movie offends you, turn it off. You know, it's it's that simple. And I think that that was, that was how it was, you know, that people, people that I knew, the adults that I knew just weren't interested. Yeah. And I think... It's really interesting. I mean, this is 73 and like uh, our last show, we did Hammer and, you know, they started uh, Curse of Frankenstein was 57, I think. And just the level of gore that they considered shocking then is hardly anything. And then, like I mentioned uh, earlier, the Herschel Gordon Lewis movies, uh, that blood trilogy came out in 63, 64 and 65. As far as gore goes, it's way over the top compared to anything in this movie. It's just, I think the content and, you know, we're talking about religion. We're talking about, you know, a little girl being subjected to all this. Just, I think people, even though there's nothing on screen necessarily, I think it's what people are thinking that really bothered everyone so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So they made this movie for $12 million and uh, like I said, it was pretty much an instant hit uh, and they expanded it across the country uh to date uh it has made 441 million dollars globally um wow. which uh adjusted for 2019 ticket prices would be 996 million and well, uh, it was I'll uh, tell you, high- it's still pumping out the, the jams because i had to pay three bucks to watch it i didn't i didn't yeah it wasn't on any such streaming service for free and i was like that's interesting that a well shutter had it a few movie. months ago but just for a little bit but yeah uh it was the highest grossing horror movie of all time uh, until it came out in 2017, but it still did not surpass it for its international box office. And then if you adjust it for inflation, uh, Exorcist, it, just across the board, it's one of the most successful movies of all time, considering for $12 million they made this movie. So is that um, is that over that 
amount of money is that like for all the re-releases and all that stuff too i would assume i don't know if they take that well yeah for all the re-releases i'm not sure they're taking that the director's cut into account i think they are yeah but uh, i know when they re-released it in in 2000 like it made over 100 million like instantly then like you know the new generation wanted to go see what it was all about i guess and yeah, yeah, or people that had already seen it or just seen yeah. it at home wanted to see on the big screens. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, well, that, those of you that, those of you that are just seeing it recently, like on Shutter or Cody, like you're talking about, did the the version that you have have the they call it the Spider Walk? Spider Walk. Yeah. In it. Yes. Yeah. It, the Amazon Prime version has that. Okay. Oh. Because it wasn't in the original as best yeah. as I remember, but the DVD oh, yeah. I've got has it in it. So it's, yeah, like, uh, it's really cool. I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's the extended cut. Yeah, they have it all uh, separated out on the streaming services where you can choose which one you want to get. And um, yeah, that's, oh, the yeah. Walk scene, the reason they didn't include that in the original, it happens about an hour into the movie. And at that point, nothing really super crazy has happened. Mm, and exactly. freaking just was like, that's uh, too much too soon. Basic. And yeah. Yeah, Man, it's and so also they because, thought the wires were too visible. It's so um, wild because like the but in terms of pacing, I'm like, I could cut 45 minutes out of this movie and it'd still be a perfect movie. But like I guess back then that's you know it's obviously the the, temp, the tempo it, you know it goes it's a two hour film. But I, I find myself I was like I couldn't watch it at night because a I'd fall asleep and b I didn't want to go to bed with that in my head. So I had to like watch it in the morning like immediately when I woke up each day. The, the first part of this movie. Yeah, if you're if it's late at night, it it you you could fall asleep to it, I think, because it is very slow. Yes, yeah, slow burn. Yes, I, I love the I love the the uh, the prayer though when you hear the uh, the Muslim prayer at the beginning because you're like, I swear every time I played it, I was like, am I watching the right movie? Let me make sure. Is this because <laughs> like it just no. it, you just don't think that's going to be the opening thing you hear and mm-hmm. see, and then it happens, and you're like, oh okay, it's like no, this isn't Indiana Jones. What's happening? Well, the director's cut too adds. I think they add quite a bit of additional footage up front as, as yeah. well, like he's in Iraq. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, whereas the theatrical cut, I feel like it's it it gets through it much quicker. But I didn't watch the theatrical cut this one. Um, so it's been a little bit, so I don't remember. I just well, remember off from what from memory, it seemed like to get through that opening bit a lot quicker. The main difference is is the spider walk scene, of course, and um, the ending because the theatrical cut. Um, Rain comes down. She has the meeting with the priest. Uh, Chris gives him the medallion. He keeps it, and then he goes and looks at the steps, and that's when the movie ends. In the theatrical cut, he gives the medallion back to Chris, looks at the steps, and then the police officer, Kinderman, shows up. And basically, the priest and Kinderman start a friendship that carries on through into The Exorcist Part 3, even though it's different actors at that point. Uh, But yeah, I think it's like 12 minutes extra footage that's in uh, the director's cut. Yeah. But yeah, this movie, I mean, it was a financial success. And I mean, it was nominated for 10 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Cinematography, Actress, Actor, or Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, and Actress. Um, it won for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. And uh, yeah, I mean, just a huge success of a movie all the way around. And just the cultural impact, I mm. think, can't really be overstated. And of course, you have something that successful 
what are we going to do? We're going to make franchise a sequel the shit out of it and make a <laughs> franchise out of this motherfucker. Yeah. So, uh, of course, we had the sequel, The Heretic, came out in 77, uh, directed by John Borman, who had won a Academy Award for Deliverance. So, again, another again. What was it? Uh, directed by John Borman. He the, won an Academy name? Award for Deliverance. The name of it? Exorcist to the Heretic. Okay. <laughs> what? It's the just heretic? say it weird. <laughs> yeah. Am I going to be the only one that's going to comment on the way the way you say it words? <laughs> you, you, you can burn hell. <laughs> you can do the research next time. I love you. Oh, I'm just <laughs> balls. I don't like you. <laughs> okay, but yeah. Uh, fuck you. Then 1990, uh, The Exorcist 3, no subtitle on that one. So fuck you. Uh, this one uh, features cameos from Patrick Ewing, Fabio, what? Uh, former Surgeon General C. Everett Coop, Larry King, and Samuel L. Jackson. And Gerald Schwartzkopf. <laughs> yes. And uh, Jeffrey Dahmer actually was obsessed with this movie and used to show it to his victims before killing them. So, uh, yay. Uh, then in 2000, the director's cut came out, which we just covered. And then um, the prequels, which is pretty interesting. So you have the you have Exorcist, the beginning that came out in 2004, then Dominion prequel to the Exorcist that came out in 2005. So the story behind this is the studio wanted to make a prequel. They hired um, Paul Schrader, famous for uh, being the screenwriter for uh, Taxi Driver, uh, Raging Bull, uh, Bringing Out the Dead, Last Temptation of Christ, a bunch of Scorsese films. They gave it to him to direct, and basically they weren't happy with the final cut because it was more of a psychological movie instead of a straight-up horror movie. So they're like, you're fired. Uh, they hired Rennie Harlan. Famous for Nightmare on Elm Street 4, uh, Die Hard 2, Cliffhanger, Dip, Deep Blue Sea. They brought him in to make the movie, and he reshot most everything. He kept a few things, but reshot it as a more straightforward horror movie. They released that in 2004, and it was just a total disaster. So they were like, fuck it. They gave Schrader $35,000 to finish his film, and uh, it was a little, it was better critically received than the other one, but they it's still a bad movie. Um, not so bad. The first one, uh, the Rennie Harlan one, William Pierre Blay said that watching this film was his most humiliating professional experience. Oof. So, uh, not good. So yeah, there's two movies out. They're basically the same movie, just shot by two directors and, uh, covering the same story. It's a prequel, whatever. Um, and then, just uh, last month, uh, Morgan Creek announced that they're developing a reboot of oh. The Exorcist. Really? I did not yeah. hear about this. I just now saw that. I was looking up to see what I remembered about the second one. The, if Richard Burton was in it and all that. Yeah. You know, and I'm flipping through IMDb and I'm like, what the fuck? Are they going to really redo this? You know? Yeah. I mean, there's like I, Chris and I, we both watched uh, the Fade to Black movie recently. Yeah. They, that's a movie that you could remake because it's a cool concept, not necessarily executed perfectly, but a movie like the exorcist, in my opinion, it's damn near perfect. Why? Yeah. Other than pointless, being pointless. a cheap cash grab. Well, exactly. Just to make money. Gus Van Zandt redoing psycho. 
I mean, oh look, god they're not shot, they're not gonna shooting. make shot. they're not gonna make a better Everything. exorcist movie than the exorcism of emily rose okay god damn oh, it god. here we you are you had to get in there <laughs> i knew this was gonna get slipped in okay cody the Son floor is yours bit. you guys know the, the, the exorcism of emily rose right where the sound guy slash camera guy like lived through most of the movie and then there's like this demonic abortion at the end of the movie fucking righteous dude that's that's the movie i watched <laughs> twice thinking that was the movie we were doing this time totally messed up so i, I really have that movie on the on the brain i got the wet brain for the ex- <laughs> <laughs> exorcism, uh, oh man that, uh, movie, that movie was cool i will say this before we go on i i did think uh the exorcist of emily rose when i first watched it that did mess me up pretty bad there's scenes that supposedly they use audio from her actual exorcism in the movie. Yep. Like there's a, a court scene where they're playing um, uh, some of the, the recordings and stuff. And it's the actual recording of, of, of the you know real case. It was it's so just hard her taking a dump. It's just her <laughs> taking a dump. <laughs> oh, oh, get out of me. She speaks. Uh, so, yeah, those. The uh, prequels were the final films of this. Uh, There's some related material. The ninth configuration, like I mentioned before, is kind of an unofficial sequel. Um, The book I talked about by Thomas B. Allen Possessed, that was made into a Showtime movie, uh, trying to document the actual case that this movie was based on. Um, Then in 2012, there was a theatrical play, uh, The Exorcist, starring Brooke Shields (laughs) as Chris. And Richard Chamberlain of uh, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold, Alan Quartermain and King Solomon's Mines as Father Marin, with uh, Teller from Penn and Teller as the creative consultant, showing them how to do all the uh, tricks what? and whatnot. And that Life debuted man. in L.A. in 2012. Then in 2016, they took it across the pond to England in Birmingham, and Sir Ian McKellen played the voice of the devil in a pre-recorded bit. They used Ian McKellen. As the devil, which sounds pretty fucking awesome. I think. Is there a musical coming? Please tell me there's a musical on the way. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a musical. Damn. I don't. I, I would say that'll that, that'll break that'll that break that the internet. Out. I remember when it opened out here. Um, it was out in Century City. I forget what the big theater is there, and um, I think it was. Anyway, I, I obviously didn't see it, but I was just fascinated. It's like, how the fuck are they going to do this on stage? <laughs> <laughs> But knowing that Teller was involved helps yeah. a lot, you know. Yes. Let's leave Penn out because he gets to be a little obnoxious after a while. But let's let's put Teller in there, man. And you know. Yeah. yeah who I think else if you're doing a stage play of that movie, you kind of lead, you kind of bury, you don't bury the lead. You say, look, we got a magician d- doing the stunt, doing the effects. Like that, yeah. you start with that, not Brooke, Brooke Shields. You know, like that's yeah. right, right. <laughs> and then uh, in 2016 through 2017, there are two seasons of The Exorcist on Fox, uh, starring Gina Davis. Uh, I never caught any of this. Why res? It was supposed to be good, but just wasn't well received. So, it was yeah. really good. I watched the first full season, and it was yeah. started the second season. I I thought it did some really cool stuff. The the I won't spoil it, but the season one finale is awesome, and it does tie in directly to the original exorcist film okay so it's it, there's like some extended stuff that keeps going on it's i think it's really cool the second season gets a little weird um but i've heard good things about it uh so i'm definitely going to finish that one up all right so yeah that's uh you know the related uh properties but of course anything successful you're not only going to try to capitalize that on 
capitalize on that yourself, other people are in other countries. So let's start <laughs> off with my favorite, the Italians, who will <laughs> fucking rip off anything. Um, so their version, uh, God, I love this movie, uh, Beyond the Door in 1974. I saw this a little bit ago before we even were going to do this. Directed by, God, I love this guy's name, Ovidio Asinitis. His <laughs> name is Asinitis. I'm pretty sure Robert rented movies from him back in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like one of those Key and Peele made-up like, football or basketball names. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of Monty Python, biggest dickus. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it? Intercontinentia buttocks or something? Oh, I can't remember. Also co-directed Piranha 2, The Spawning. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he oh, co-directed uh, Piranha to the Spawning with James Cameron, so uh, did some stuff. Uh, it stars Haley Mills' older sister, Juliette Mills, uh, not nearly as popular. And, uh, I mean, I, I saw this, and it is straight up a ripoff. I mean, it's not a little girl or anything like that. It's a grown-ass woman who's pregnant, but her head spins around. She pukes pea soup. The, she has a child. Her little boy who rides around in the car drinking pea soup, a Campbell's pea soup can, drinks soup straight out of the can. In his bedroom, he has a, like an Andy Warhol picture, but it's just Campbell's pea soup. I mean, they're really hitting you over the head with this. Her head spins around. Uh, she talks in a low, gravelly voice. I mean, Warner Brothers tried to sue the production company, but failed because this is based, The Exorcist is based on a true story. William Peter Blay has said that. So, therefore, they don't own that story. It's a real-life thing. But they did find that some of their uh, publicity materials were too similar, so they got them on that. Uh, the next ripoff I want to talk about is uh, Abby from 1974, which is a blaxploitation spin on The Exorcist. Um Directed by William Girdler, who also made Sheba Baby with uh, Pam Greer, Grizzly, Day of the Animals, and the Manitou. Uh, and he openly admits that they were just trying to you know, ride on the coattails of the exorcist and make some money. It stars William Marshall, who was Blackula uh, in Blackula, Scream, Blackula, Scream. He's also the king of cartoons on Pee Wee's Playhouse. And basically, they just changed the Yeah. But they just changed the story enough that uh, instead of, you know, a demon from northern Iraq comes and gets a girl in Washington, D.C., the father is an archaeologist doing a archaeological dig in Nigeria, comes across the ocean, possesses his daughter in Kentucky, and pretty much everything is exactly the same. But uh, Warner Brothers sued them for this, and um, they won because uh, it was too similar uh they actually confiscated all copies of the film, and it's been apparently really hard to find uh, to see a decent quality. All of it, it seems to be like pulled from old, really crappy reels. So, uh, but well, my favorite. So it's the same story, twelve year old. But the tagline on the poster I saw was "Abby doesn't need a man anymore. The devil is her lover now." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, then there's, of course, the Turkish S E Y T A N Satan. I'm going to assume that's how you. Uh, but it's a scene for scene remake, but it's from Turkey. 
I don't think it was like beyond the door and Abby were getting money. They were successful. So Warren went after them. I think the Turkish exorcist kind of stayed in Turkey because it was in Turkey. <laughs> God damn it. All righty. Uh, so yeah, that's, that does it for, uh, everything I got on this movie. Um, Chris, um, did we find out like, do we have an earnest connection for this one? I, 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 there's too much shit for me to go through. I'm sure there is. I'll post something on the Facebook page if I find it. Because I I posted a nothing but trouble gif yesterday on a, on a thread that Corey was uh, chatting on uh, about the, the poll on, on the bloodsucking geeks uh, Facebook page. And I, then I tried to make a a connection to Ernest from nothing but trouble, the, uh, the Dan Aykroyd movie, but I couldn't make that connection, but I did make the connection to the special effects makeup guys from nightmare on Elm street. They also did the old people makeup on Dan Aykroyd. Oh, there you go. But dude, this is so wild because even with all the parody and all the jokes and the, you know, the scary movie, uh, like funniest scene possible in any, in any James Woods. Like, uh, even with all that, seeing that movie now, like I said, I could not finish it at night. I could hearing the music, seeing the stuff, it physically like exhilarated me, like in a way that I hadn't been scared in a while in the way that I was like, whoa, this is different. You know, like the last couple films that did that to me were uh, actually Jordan Pill films like Us and Get Out because of the like the psychological aspects of it. But but really, The Exorcist like really hit me hard. And I was like. Damn, I was like, I don't want to watch that ever again, even though I will always contest it's probably the greatest in the genre. I mean, like, and I don't really know. I mean, it's the one that started it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what's our rating scale going to be like, uh, like like, bloody crucifixes? crucifixes? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've been thinking about this this for 10 minutes. Robert had that locked and loaded. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I was waiting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah we do so what are you gonna give it cody oh i give it 13 bloody crucifixes but also <laughs> let me just say something about that scene where she starts laughing when she starts laughing at the power of crest compels you and he starts like going to town on her like rocky balboa i, I kind of started laughing dude i started laughing like i started it really hit me really hard but no really like top of the tops like at least if it's a five scale it's five out of five bloody crucifixes uh and I'm forever scarred by the lick me uh, line. Like it'll never, <laughs> it'll never leave my like. Especially because they had to do continuity on that on the Ellen Burson's face blood. Like they had to, they had to shoot that more than once. Like that's that's just wild. Chris, crazy. Um, you know what? The, like it, this, this is a movie that I was always afraid to do. Uh, I think Corey, we talked about it. Like there's some movies that. Because I'm afraid to what do you, what do you even say about this movie, right? I mean, it's it's such a it's a legendary movie. It's like belongs in the top five, I think, probably of almost you know like every best of horror list out there. So it's hard to say, but you know this movie, like it, I can't say that I have like a personally strong connection with this film uh, because it was it was released long after I had. Um, you know, since I was a kid. And, and so when I saw it, I was probably like in my teens and it, I don't, I don't remember, you know, really affecting me super much. Um, but I, what I try to do when I watch it, what I try to do when I watched it this last time is I try to put myself like back into the mind of the people that watched it like the very first time in the theaters and to, to try to like, 
like block out all the other horror stuff I've ever seen and just kind of like watch it in this like vacuum. Um, and from that standpoint, like I could totally see like how just insane this movie was when it first came out. I just can't imagine. I wish I could go back in time and watch it there for the first time with people in the theater. That must have been such an awesome like movie going experience. Uh, I, I wish I could do that. But um like I said, this movie is 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 one of the greats. It's a five out of five for me, for sure. Five out of five, what? Bloody crucifixes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> is it just blood on there, or is there other bodily fluids? I don't want to know. Want to know what? God, <laughs> uh, Robert, what about you? Oh, it's uh, I got to give it five out of five as well. Like, I mean, it's like Corey was saying earlier. It's not just a horror movie. It's a great movie. I mean, it's, and it's still to me, you know, I hadn't seen it in several years and watching it and like, I, it still is creepy. And like you were saying, Chris, it's at the top of a lot of lists. Like, I mean, it's pretty well known as being like the scariest movie of all time on any mainstream horror list. And it's, you know, it's, it's a classic, man. I wish, I, I wish I could see it in the theater. Like, I don't think I've seen this one. I can't remember now, honestly, but I don't think I've seen this one in the theater, but I would, I would love to, if they did another re-release or whatever, or, you know, oh, there's so many, everything's digital now, so they can just do these like, you know, movies anytime. And I wish someone around here would show it, you know, in October, because they show a bunch of dumb shit, but I want to see, I want something <laughs> like this. You know? Halloween town. Franken <laughs> weenie. Yeah. Uh, what about yeah. you, Corey? What are, what are your what are your ratings? And you this... put some respect on Franken weenie's name. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, you cannot cur- you, like cuss uh, like Dotsons around Cody. He will lose his shit. <laughs> <laughs> some respect uh, for me. This movie's like I would say the movie that has had the biggest like no shit real life impact on me from watching. I think just the fact that like Robert and I were saying, this is one of the, this is the only movie that my mom would not allow me to see until I reached a certain age. And so that already built it up in my mind to a certain extent. And then when I watched it, I mean, it delivered because lots of times you build something up more than it could ever come through. And this movie, uh, like Robert said, it's, just outside of a horror movie, it's just a fantastic fucking movie. Uh, one of my favorite of all time, horror or otherwise. And just I, for me, I totally get why some people, you know, might appreciate it, but just it's another movie for me, especially being raised Catholic and all that. When I saw it, it's it's hard to explain if you're haven't been part of that faith, but that shit's real. I mean, all the symbolism about you know. The body and blood of Christ for Catholics, that is not symbolism. That is actual weird stuff's happening. Um, I don't believe any of that stuff now. doesn't matter. But uh, having seen it at a time that I did have some of that faith, it has affected me. And even to this day, there's parts of that movie that get me creeped the fuck out. And um, I always like watching it. I'm glad it doesn't scare me as much anymore. I can go to sleep. Um, Things like what Rob was saying, Paranormal Activity. That's another movie that fuck with me. Because uh, I can see killers in the woods killing horny teenagers all day long. I'm not in the woods banging some 18-year-old. 
despite what you might think. That's not why. He's I thought that was chicken plans, man. Yeah, no, I am not. They, they're not throwing themselves at me, despite what you would think. <laughs> I promise. But uh, yeah, shit that could happen. Like um, one interview that Freakin gave that I was watching. It's like this isn't just some like scary movie. This is like you're in your neighborhood on your street on the second floor of that window on the house next to you is a little girl going through this. And I think that's just so powerful and what makes this movie so effective, um, regardless of what you believe about the actual possession uh, aspect of it. But yeah, just one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, I was nervous about covering it as well, but I think just making it about our personal experiences so much is really the best we can do because, um, there's nothing we can add to the conversation about the exorcist, but yeah, five out of five bloody and other body, bodily fluid soaked crucifixes. Oh, soaked. It is. It's soaked in blood and other. Can you smell it? Can you smell oh. it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so last but not least, I wanted to save you um, to the end, Rob, because this is, you know, you suggested this, but um, I'm interested in, in your thoughts, like viewing it again, you know, after, you know, seeing it so long ago, like what, what did you think going, you know, with this last viewing and what are your overall thoughts and, and rating? I'm definitely going five out of five on a bloody crucifixes. I mean, it, like you say, in comparison to some of the effects that can be done today, I can see where people that weren't exposed to this, you know, like, like the kids that I taught 10 years ago who are old enough to see it now and I'll not be phased by it. But I, it, it still has that impact, you know, for a lot of the reasons that, that you guys already mentioned. And I came as close as I could to actually seeing it. Of course, I'm listening to you guys talk about seeing it in the theater. And I thought, you know, in the drive-in, I kind of missed out. It was just me and two other guys in the car reacting to it. Right. You know, I don't know that I could have sat through it in the theater. Oh, yeah. You know, because oh, wow. I, I can't handle, like, going back to the thing. I can't handle the silence in the theater, the tension that's mm. building. It's like, that's you know, my when, favorite part. <laughs> oh, that, I mean, but see, I'm the dude too. Back when I had my little apartment over in Hollywood, I put headphones on to watch movies so that I wouldn't disturb the neighbors. So when the scary shit would start building up, I'm holding the headphones way out here. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I go back and put it back, you know, but uh, um, I think it holds up. And Chris, I really get where you're coming from. The film for me that I feel like that, if only I could have seen it in the theater when it first came out, was Psycho. Mm. Oh, wow. By the time we all saw it, we knew, right? Exactly. Imagine that first time that rocking chair spins around and you're like, oh, fuck, what is this? You know, but yeah, the film holds up. I think it's it's still a lot of fun in its own way. Yeah, five out of five bloody crucifixes. Hell yeah. I think it's unanimous. Yeah. The, I think it's yeah. the first one we've ever had. That's, that's like that's like twenty five fucking bloody crucifixes. <laughs> or how many it other is. people are on here? <laughs> Your math is sound, my old friend. Yeah. That's gonna leave a puddle. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, so no, that's, I think that's gonna wrap up the show. Um, this has been awesome, Rob. The, our first guest ever. It's this is gonna have to be one of many times you come on the show. Uh, thank am, you so much. Again, I'm yeah. on belief, and I would look forward to doing it again. Yeah, it's fun to just to get to hang out with you guys and talk geeky shit like this. Well, that's the thing is like that's what's so awesome about this is because like you know we're all really it's cheesy it sounds like blood sucking geeks like we're all into the same stuff. It's just fun to sit down and talk 
uh, about an awesome movie with, you know, like other people that, that love it as much as you do. You know, that's awesome. Right. Right. Thanks for your time. Yeah. All right, man. You guys take care. Absolutely. All right. Take it easy. You we'll see y'all. you next time. See you on the chat. Okay, that is going to do it for this week's episode. We'll be back again in a couple weeks, and we'll be getting ready for Halloween. So we have some special things in store for you. We hope you stay safe, and we'll see you next time. The Exorcist is already one of the highest-grossing films in the history of motion pictures. Why does a film reviewed by national critics as terrifying, horrible, half-successful, draw throngs of people to its ticket office? We checked with Dallas theatergoers to find out. Well, so many people have been fainting, I figured it must be a pretty good movie. They wanted to come and see it. Because I've seen lines standing here, thought it must be a good movie with this many people trying to see it. Actually, I probably wouldn't be here except that my husband insisted on coming, but I had visions of fainting and, you know, getting sick. I've been sick all the way over here. <laughs> Some needed only a taste of the movie to satisfy their curiosity. I couldn't take it. It was horrible. I never seen anything gross like that in my life. I, I had my fingers up into my ear about that far, and I, was, I couldn't take it. It was too sickening. It really was. It was bad. I've been staying in the lobby for about 30 minutes, and I heard the worst was yet to come, so I didn't want to see the rest of it. Others stood the entire trial. That's pretty weird. <laughs> pretty weird. Are you glad you saw it? Yeah, I was glad I saw it, but uh, I don't think I'll come back. I have never seen anything, you know, I thought I said, well, I could guess the end of any picture, but I couldn't. You really like it? I really like it. see it again? I'm coming back. It's probably about the most fantastic movie I think I've ever seen, really, as far as visual effects and animation. How, how did you like it? it? scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Would you come see it again? No way. Yeah, that's really good. He would, and they, they enjoyed it. I hated it. But it was the best, worst movie I ever saw. No one knows exactly what makes a movie a hit. But one thing is for sure, The Exorcist has got it. This is Patty Burns for Channel 8 News.